So we're continuing in the book of Romans, and uh, we are in Romans chapter 2. And I'm going to start in verse 12 and read verses 12 through 16. And so Paul is writing to the Romans here, and he says, For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law or a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So you're like, what does that mean? There's a lot of laws. When when you read through Romans, there is a lot of God talking or or Paul talking about law, but not everything is the 10 commandments law. When he says law, there's multiple laws. There's a law of sin and death. There's a law of righteousness. There's a law of the life of spirit of God in Christ Jesus. So right here, he's talking about judged by the law, the law of God. And so Paul's purpose in writing this letter is to those in Rome is twofold. These believers here had received a distorted rumor about Paul's message and theology. So he felt it was necessary to put into writing the gospel he'd been preaching now for 25 years. He was not new at this. He was telling them, listen, I've been preaching this for 25 years. It's the same gospel that I preached for the last 25 years. I need you guys to know this is the gospel and what it is. Secondly, he sought to correct certain problems in the church occurring of wrong attitudes of Jews towards Gentiles and Gentiles towards Jews. Wow, there's nothing new under the sun. People still don't get along. So the overall theme of this letter is God's gift of righteousness is demonstrated in our death with Christ to sin and the power to live a victorious life in and by the Holy Spirit. That is the overall theme of the book of Romans. Paul declares that a transformed life in Christ results in the application of righteousness in order to please God, to love in all areas of our behavior, to love the body of Christ, social, civil, and moral. Okay, this is the purpose of Paul writing here. What is Paul saying? Because you're saying, well, that's great, but what is Paul saying? So Paul is explaining to these Roman believers that those who live without the scriptures to guide them will still be found guilty before God because at the judgment, it will be shown that they ignored their creator and violated the warnings of their moral conscience. That's why the Bible says man is without excuse. So that all men have a moral conscience. And so he's saying that even those without the scriptures to guide them will be found guilty before God because they didn't obey that moral part of them that was saying, drawing them to the creator. They rejected it. Each one deliberately walked away from God without a savior will suffer eternally. Then he says, people who had the scriptures, the Jews, will also be found guilty because they just didn't obey them. <laughs> so it says, you, you rejected these things and they just don't obey them. So to go on to prove to the reader that pleasing obeying God was not impossible for those who don't even have the Bible, because at this point they only had certain scriptures Paul describes a deep change that was taking place in the Gentile converts when they were born again. 
Even though they had little knowledge of the scripture, their lives began conforming to God's righteousness. Paul speaks of this when he says the work of the law written in their hearts and their conscience and thoughts guiding them to obey God and do his will. This is in direct alignment and fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. If you remember Jeremiah 31 where it says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest says the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. So Paul here, he's continuing to persuade these Jewish believers, right? Cause he's, he's, he's writing to Jewish and Gentile believers. So he's telling these Jewish believers that when the time comes for these Gentile converts to stand before God and those hidden private areas of their lives will be disclosed, there will be no surprises and the record will show that they fulfilled God's law because God's law was written on their heart. So I need to address a few heretical teachings that are going about in the American church today. I want to share with you the Greek word for grace, and I've shared this before, and if you've followed me long enough, I talk about this along, uh, oftentimes. Grace does not mean unmerited favor. The Greek word is C-H-A-R-I-S, and every single place in the New Testament where this word is used, it means the same thing. It's the same word. It has one definition, and it means the graciousness of manner or act of the divine influence upon the heart. Isn't that interesting? And its reflection in the life. Oh, isn't that interesting? That's the definition of Grace according to the Bible. And you, you, you've heard grace preached so many times. You, you've probably really not heard it preached correctly in a lot of different places. Every place in the New Testament, this is the definition for grace. So Titus tells us, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. What does the grace do? It teaches us. So grace teaches us. That denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. So Paul tells Titus here, he said, listen, this is what you preach. This is what grace is. He said, you teach this to people. Teach them that grace is the power on the heart of God writing his laws on the heart in order that it's reflected in the life. So grace teaches us to keep and obey God's law that's written on our heart. Is that not what we just read? Grace is not static. It's alive. It's active. 
grace writes on our heart and produces and it produces in us the ability to actually keep and obey God's law that now through God doing this in us we can actually please and obey him Amen. we are actually able to overcome sin through the power of this word charis c h a r i s and the holy spirit which is poured into the life of those born again now we will get to Romans chapter 7 in a few months, okay? But this is the difference between an unregenerated man trying to live by God's law and he's unable to fully obey God. When you get to Romans chapter 7, if you go read that, if you want to read that for homework before we even get it, it's the famous quote from Paul where he says, For the good I will do, I do not, but the evil I will not do, that I practice. And so many people use this as a scripture for an excuse to why they have to sin. I've heard it multiple times. Well, you know what Paul said? And I'm like, that's not what Paul meant. You're twisting and distorting scripture. You're taken out of context. You're not really trying to dig in and find out what scripture says. Romans chapter 7 is a man, an unregenerated man, trying to live and please God and not sin by obeying the law. That's why we have Romans chapter 8 that says, Therefore there is no condemnation in those in Christ. I'm able to fully please God. What? By the power of the Holy Spirit that resides inside me. That I can actually overcome sin. I am more than a conqueror. So we're not this, oh, wretched man that I am. What can I do? So Paul says, what can I do? I'm wretched. I can't do anything about this sin in my life as an unregenerated man. But now, praise God, there's no condemnation. I can actually overcome this world. I can overcome my sin. I can overcome my flesh through the power of the Holy Spirit that resides inside me. I'm not, I I am no longer hopeless in my situation. I'm not hopeless man trying to please and obey God on my own merit. I can actually do this through the power of the Holy Spirit. I can actually please him. I can actually obey him. There's actually freedom in this. The Romans chapter 7 man is powerless to overcome sin. The Romans 8 man is victorious over sin. So how do you, when you look at these two people, read this. Paul's not wishy-washy. He, he, he doesn't have a multiple personality. He's not, what is this, binary? I don't even know if I'm using that in the right way. Probably not. <laughs> he said, I was one way, but now. He's explaining it to them. The Apostle John tells us further the ability to overcome sin by the power of God. In 1 John chapter 3, he says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it doesn't know him. That's always reassuring to me is that they don't know me because they don't know him. So if you don't know me, you don't know him. Beloved, now are we the children of God. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. If you have your Bible, I want you to underline that. 
Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness, and you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Therefore, whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. In what? In this concept right here. He says, let no one deceive you that you have to continue to sin. Let no one deceive you that says grace means you can continue to sin. That's what he's saying. He says, he who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. So he says, the righteousness I do is because of him inside of me. And he who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not continue to sin, for a seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he's been born of God. So he says, listen, I'm about to tell you something. You're going to be deceived by these people. You're going to be deceived by false doctrine in latter days coming. He said, in this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. So he says, whoever does not live a life of righteousness is not of God. Whoever continues to sin is still of the devil. That's what he's saying. Nor is he who does not love his brother. He's talking about his brother in Christ. So I don't want to get too much of that because I want to talk about law and sin written on our hearts. So when he says, while the Holy Spirit is doing his job, he's cleansing us, he's leading us, he's guiding us, he's directing us, he's prompting us, he's urging us to obey God's laws, we have a part to play. This is why John says, those in Christ purify themselves. We don't become pure by ourselves, but we have a responsibility now to work in conjunction with the Holy Spirit to walk in a certain way. And I think a lot of people fail at this because they're unwilling to discipline their flesh to get the desired results. It was one of my favorite scriptures, 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. So Paul himself, the man that wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, perhaps one of the greatest apostles that probably did more for Christianity than anybody else, he said... I discipline my body. I discipline my flesh and I bring it into subjection. Otherwise, I could preach to thousands of people and I'm still going to be disqualified. Why? Because I gave myself to my flesh and I continue to live in my sin. When I was first saved, nobody had to tell me to stop doing certain things. Pastor Matt and I talk about this all the time. When I got saved, nobody had to tell me to stop partying. Nobody had to tell me to stop drinking. Nobody had to tell me to stop sleeping around. Nobody had to tell me to stop listening to certain music or stop, stop dressing a certain way. Nobody told me these things. Do you know who told me? God's law was written on my heart. And so I would do things. People say, why are you doing that? And I'm like, I, I don't know. I just, I have to. 
And I didn't even know the word of God at that time. I said, I I have to do this. I have an urging to do this. I don't know. This is not right. This is not right. Nobody had to tell me to do these things. Nobody had to tell me to stop going to bars. Nobody had to tell me that. It was written on my heart. Is that not what I just read to you? Did I just not read God wrote his laws on those hearts that are born again? Did God lie? I'm getting a lot of stares. No, God God is not a lie. Let God be true and every man a liar. Nobody had to tell me to read my Bible. Nobody had to tell me to go to church. Nobody had to tell me to worship God. Nobody had to tell me to fast and pray. I was like, how do I get to God? How do I seek him? What do I do? How do I know him more? People said, well, do this. Praise God, I'm going to do that. Why? Because it was written on my heart. Nobody had to tell me. I think a lot of people just want to check the box and I attest to Christianity. I really like the people there. I like the way they live because it's really clean living. I like this or I like that. And so you attest to a certain way of life, but you've not been changed. Because God said, did I not just read to you where God said, I will write my laws on their heart. So why does anybody have to say anything to you at all? Why does somebody have to say, you're living in sin? Why would somebody even have to say that to you? Did God not write his laws on your heart? What's going on? Nothing else mattered to me but to be in his presence. And if you haven't stopped sinning, why what, have you truly been born again? I'm going to question you. If you're still continuing to live in the sin and there's been no change, nothing's changed in you, I'm going to say, have you been born again? Because if all of the above is true, which is it, which it is, then why are you rejecting the power of God in your life? you're continuing on in your sin he said you do not know god i don't care who told you what i don't care who told you what i don't i don't don't care what they told you if you continue to live a life of sin and claim to know him you do not know him you are still an unregenerated child of the devil now that that, you're like well that sounds harsh i didn't say it i'm just telling you what god said He said, speak with all authority on these things. How is it that anyone has to tell you to stop sinning? Why does anybody have to tell you to read your Bible, to pray, to obey scripture? Why does someone have to tell you to obey scripture? I I don't get it. I, I don't get it. Why? Why does someone have to tell you to fast when Pastor Matt gets up here and says, we're going to do a fast? And people are like, ugh, I, I can't do that. I don't want... Why do we have to tell you to fast? Why, why do I have to tell you you should read your Bible? Why? Is his laws written on your heart? Why do you not want the things of God? What's gone inside you? What's happened? Have you become apathetic? Have you become lukewarm? Have you lost your first love? 
Maybe. Maybe it's something for you to digest and say, have I lost my first love, God? Now, the second part that Paul says here is we're going to be judged by his gospel. What gospel have you received? Paul told them that they would be judged by this gospel that he preached, the one he's been preaching for 25 years. The gospel that Paul preached was one that included repentance and a radical break from sin. You can read all of Paul's writings. And included a radical break from sin. In Galatians 1.8, Paul said, Even if we or any angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. He said, listen, even if I come back and I start preaching to you another gospel, I'm, I, I'm falling under a curse. That's what he said. And again, to the Corinthian church, He tells them they were willing to hear and receive another Jesus and another gospel. And my mind goes back to that first John where John said, let no one deceive you. Let no one deceive you. Paul told the Corinthians, he says, for if he comes preaching another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit. So now he's saying to them, listen, People are preaching another Jesus and a different spirit. So maybe you've received another Jesus and a different spirit. He said, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted. You put up with it. He said, you put up with it. So someone comes in and they preach another Jesus and another gospel, another spirit. And he said, you put up with it. You just allow it to happen. You, you allow that. Why would you allow that? He's talking to believers. Why would we allow that? Well, I'm just supposed to love, Pastor Crystal. Jude tells us, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once and for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So even back then, Jude was saying, listen, there's already men coming in that are turning the grace of God into lewdness. And he said, listen, you need to contend for the faith. Why are we not contending for the faith? Well, maybe, maybe it's just, maybe it's because we've received a false gospel. I'm reading a book um, on Bonhoeffer right now that uh, Miss Angie gave me. I figured it was a great time to read about him. So all my quotes have been coming from that book. (laughs) So I, I read this from the Holocaust Encyclopedia, and everybody knows who Bonhoeffer was. He was very outspoken during the time of Hitler, and he suffered for it. They killed him because he was um, speaking out against Hitler and what Hitler was doing. At this time, the population of Germany in 1933 was 60 million. Almost all Germans were Christians. 
belonging, 20 million belonged to the Roman Catholic Church and the rest were Protestant at 40 million. The Jewish community was less than 1% of the population. Throughout this period, there were virtually no public opposition to anti-Semitism or any readiness by church leaders to publicly oppose the Nazi regime on the issues of anti-Semitism and state-sanctioned violence against the Jews. Okay. Christians were persuaded by the positive Christianity in Article 24 of the 1920 Nazi Party Platform, which states, We demand freedom... For all religious denominations, this is what the Nazi party put out. And Bonhoeffer said almost every church agreed with this. Okay. We demand freedom for all religious denominations in the state, provided that they do not threaten the Nazi party's existence, nor offend the moral feelings of the German race. This is sounding familiar. The party as such stands for positive Christianity, but does not commit itself to any particular denomination. It combats the Jewish materialist spirit within and without us, and is convinced that our nation can achieve permanent health only from within on the basis of the principle, the common interest before self-interest. If you don't, think that sounds like what's going on right now. You're not paying attention to what's going on right now. It was not until 1945 that any church spoke out. Twelve years of silence from Christians during the Holocaust. Twelve years of silence. And what did Bonhoeffer attribute the following evil to? He attributed it to something he called cheap grace. Read about it. He attributed it to cheap grace, and he accused all the churches preaching at that time of preaching cheap grace. And this is what he said. Cheap grace means grace sold on the market like cheap jacks wares. The sacraments, the forgiveness of sin, consolation of religion are thrown away at cut prices. Grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasury from which she showers blessings with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits. Grace without price. Grace without cost. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance. Because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Since the cost was infinite, the possibilities of using and spending it are infinite. What would grace be if it were not cheap? Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. And costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field for the sake of it. Man will go and sell all that he has. And is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. And it is the call of Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. And costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. The gift which must be asked for. The door at which man must knock. And such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. It's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It's costly because it cost a man his life. And it's grace because it gives a man the only true life. It's costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it's costly because it costs God the life of his son. 
You were bought at a price, and at what cost God must cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. And he went on and he talks about that cheap grace justifies the sin, not the sinner. And aren't we hearing that? Justifies the sin. It sounds a lot like the messages playing today. This is the gospel. Preach in so many churches. It doesn't matter if you continue to sin. You're forgiven. God loves you. He wants you to be happy. He wants you to be nice. Grace means you got away with something. You be you. I was praying on this and, and I asked the Lord, I said, Lord, give me an illustration of what this looks like. And the Lord showed me something. I'm going to give you a run an example because I run and I like running examples. Or not, amen. It's fine. <laughs> Everybody likes to run. So, uh, I, you know, uh, I often go for long runs and um, come back sweaty, right? Take off your clothes, get in the shower, go. There's sometimes, though, when I come back and I'm not quite ready to shower or I don't have time to shower. And so I'll, um, I, I, I have, you know, I still got stuff to do around the house or, or I have to jump in the car and go somewhere. I just don't really have time. And so, so I, I kind of will dry myself off and I got some of this cheap perfume that has some alcohol in it, you know, the, the body fragrance spray and I'll just spray it all over me like that. And, you know, and, and kind of you wipe down and, and then I go pull my hair back and I go and I'm like, I smell good. I'm fresh. (laughs) Put on a little deodorant. But at the end of the day, as I get into bed, I lay there and I think, oh, I feel gross. I haven't showered today. Then if you go to bed and you get up the next day and you do the next thing, that's cheap grace. Cheap grace is, is a masking perfume. We spray it all over us. We mask the smell. And we look good to everybody else and we smell good. But we're masking the uncleanness. And you can do it day after day, but eventually your body odor is going to get control of it. That's cheap grace. So Paul tells us because of this wonderful and awesome grace that God has bestowed on his own and given us his perfect gift of the spirit to overcome this world, to overcome sin, that sin that so easily trips us up. He says, one day our hearts will be laid before him and everything secret will be revealed. Our thoughts and the intents of our heart will be laid bare. For we cannot hide anything from him. We will give an account of all. And I don't know about you, but that's a scary thought to me. Jesus said, for nothing is secret that will not be revealed, nor anything hidden that will not be known and come to light. Therefore, take heed how you hear. 
For whoever has to him more will be given and whom whoever does not have even what he seems to have will be taken from him. There's nothing, folks, that's not going to be revealed. The hidden motives of our heart. And Paul says this at the end. He says, Your, their hearts will either accuse them or excuse them. With the law written on our heart, we will be excused. We will be able to stand before him. And when the thoughts of our heart are laid bare, it will be shown that it was the desire of our heart was to obey and please God. Because that's what was written on our heart. But if not, it will be laid bare and our heart will accuse us. Paul says, what will it be? Your heart will either accuse you or it will excuse you. Angie, we come up and pray. Play. Did I say pray? While I pray, Angie's going to play. I want to give you an opportunity to respond to this. The Bible says, folks, your heart is either going to accuse you or it's going to excuse you. And if you've not been born again and had God's laws written on your heart, you will never enter the kingdom of God. You cannot overcome sin in this world. You can't over, you'll not, not be able to overcome this world no matter how good you try. You're just putting perfume on. Jesus said, a man must be born again or he cannot see the kingdom of God. You must be born again. You must be converted. You must have God's law written on your heart. It's the only way to obey him, the only way to please him. How do we do this? The Bible says if you confess him as Lord. See, people want Jesus as Savior. They don't want him as Lord. And Romans says, you confess him as Lord. That means he is the Lord of my life. It means I have given up everything to follow you, Lord. You are my Lord and I humble myself before you. Jesus wants to be our Lord. He is Lord and Savior, but he wants to be our Lord. We have to proclaim him as Lord. He died for our sins so that we can be reconciled to God. And you are without excuse, oh man. You must repent of your sins and accept this gift of salvation that Christ provided on the cross. Don't just spray yourself with cheap grace. Repent. And be renewed, be transformed. Let God write his laws on your heart. Turn away from the world and turn towards him. And then begin your life of walking towards him every day. If you've been far from the Lord, I just want to give you an opportunity to come back to him tonight. No greater time. The days are short. 
Folks, the world is getting crazier and crazier. There's much deception out there. Come back to the Lord. Just return to Him and He will return to you. And I want to give you a minute to just respond to this. Just respond to this message tonight. You can please Him. It's not impossible to please God. It's not impossible to obey God. He made a way through the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. Just humble yourself. Get rid of everything that offends. Walk towards the cross. Nothing else matters but to know Him. Father, I thank you for this word tonight, God. Thank you for the power of the cross and the power of grace in our lives, God, that we can please you, God. We can walk in your ways. We can walk as you walk, Lord. We can please you and we can obey you and we are children, your children, Father, that are obedient. I just claim that tonight for our church, Father God. We are not rebellious children, God. We are obedient children, God. We love you. We live for you. We continue to walk towards you, God. We overcome this world by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Father, I thank you for tonight, God. Thank you for everything you do for us, God. I love the spirit that you've given us, God. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you for writing your laws on our heart, Lord, that you loved us so much, God. You made a way for us to draw near. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Hey, we want to thank you so much for being online with us today. I want to remind you, if you're not a follower on Facebook, please like our page on YouTube. Please subscribe. Follow us on Twitter. Tell all your friends. Continue to watch online. We thank you for watching. We love you so much. Have a great day.